I think I had no idea who I was. I, th- I honestly think I don't have any idea who I was. Hello, Internet. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist. I'm a best-selling humorist. And apparently now I'm important enough to have like a PR firm behind me, uh, which is weird. But there it is. Um, I was introduced to my guest today by... One of my uh, PR reps um, that my publisher hired for my upcoming book. It's weird to say that, but um, that's apparently a thing now. Um, one of her other clients is a guy named Justin Camp, um, who he's an interesting guy. Um, he was for years in a high powered career in Silicon Valley as a venture capitalist, and then he walked away from it all to start a Christian ministry. Um, so Justin Camp is the founder of Gather Ministries together with his wife, Jennifer. Together they put out a lot of different things. They do an email devotional called Wire for men. They do one for women called Loop. They put out a podcast called Rush. And Justin has published several books. His latest book is called Odyssey, Encounter the God of Heaven and Escape the Surly Bonds of This World. So... I personally am really interested in this kind of phenomenon of um, people in, you know, lucrative and in some would say fulfilling careers who walk away from it all to, I guess, follow Jesus would be the Sunday school way of putting it, um, which I don't object to. Um, I tried to use the phrase neo-monastic. He was not super into that, which I get. Um, He's not like cloistering himself off from the world or whatever. It's it's ministry, not solitude. Um, but I think it's very interesting. Now, Justin is the kind of sincere, optimistic, sunny guy that I normally wouldn't spend a lot of time talking to, to be honest, because I'm, I'm always going to be that hot topic goth kid at heart. Um, but I was very happy to have him on the show. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Um, a little more Jesus-y than we usually go on the show, but you know what? I'm pretty okay with that. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, flip you over to Justin. I'll let him introduce himself, and I will see you on the other side. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, Luke. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here and uh, glad to be here. I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question that I am sure is on all of our listeners' minds, which is, do you ever wish that your last name was Case instead of Camp? I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, uh, I, I, imagine, I imagine like millions of people have tried to make that That started joke. in about third grade. And uh, yeah, uh, that would be... I, I was actually, I was vacillating between case and time. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Time actually started a little bit earlier. That was probably second grade. <laughs> this, this is, um, this is revenge, by the way. My parents uh, chose to name me Luke when I was born in 1985. So my whole life, it's been Luke. Right. 
I am your father, you know. So I, anytime I can make fun of someone else's name, I, I do what I can. Um, Justin, we're going to talk this time around about um, well, how would how would you put it? You were you were in you were working on Wall Street, and then you moved to Silicon Valley, right? You were the high powered businessman, and then you. Uh, walked away from it all to start a Christian ministry. Is that an accurate uh, summary? That's good. That's uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Which um, you know, I, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was just joking. I think you, you captured everything. I don't think I need to say anything more. Yeah. No. All right. Cool. I guess we're done. Not everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was I, I was telling you um, before we started, which. Uh, I, that I'm kind of interested in this phenomenon of uh, neo-monasticism, which you said, you know, that doesn't necessarily quite apply to you. Um, but, you know, just this um, phenomenon of, you know, I, would you would you call yourself an evangelical or? So I certainly grew up. Um, so I, I can't rem- remember a time where I wasn't going to church. Um, sure. I, I So my mom was diagnosed with leukemia when I was 12 and she passed away when I was 21. And so during that kind of period of time where like my kids right now, we have a 16, uh, 14 year old, 16 year old and an 18 year old. They're going through, you know, living in the middle of Silicon Valley, all their, you know, all their friends, parents work at Facebook and Google and Apple, and they're going through, you know, various ebbs and flows of their faith. So during that sort of crucial period from 12 to 21, I was, you know, I look back and I wouldn't have said this. I certainly was, you know, on, on a several probably prodigal son journeys during that time. I was, you know, barely passing, you know, my, you know, uh, high school and things like that. But during that time, I feel like I was, um, I was kind of holding on to God somewhere in the background. And so, so yeah, I grew up in, in, in the evangelical tradition. I would say I have, my heart is sort of a little bit more in kind of the, you know, kind of spirit filled kind of uh, charismatic world sure, though sure. though the churches that I go to my home church right now is an evangelical church okay cool yeah I mean I I just ask because you know you say monastic people think Catholic or um, Orthodox but um yeah I I feel like I've I've I keep running into you know in in life and in um, my reading of, of you know let's say low church <laughs> people who um, are, you know, have kind of done this similar thing of walking away um, from, uh, I don't, I don't want to say real life, but you know what I mean? To, um, to kind of devote their lives to, um, you know, full-time prayer, full-time ministry, which is really interesting to me. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Um, do you want to talk about, do you want to start on wall street? Talk about your time there or I'll start just a little bit f- earlier. So I actually grew up, uh, technically I, I was born in Colorado, but I moved to Silicon Valley. Uh, we live in Los Altos. I grew up in Los Altos. It's kind of the geographical heart of Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, so from age two to, um, to when I went off to college, went to college in Southern California, uh, met my wife in Southern California. And then, um, we packed up a U-Haul and drove across the country to Philadelphia. And I went to law school there for three years. My, my, mm-hmm. my wife taught, High school English started off as a substitute teacher and um, and then a full time position uh, outside I used of Philadelphia. To teach high school English. Oh, cool! Yeah, it's a 
it's a, I think it's a very noble profession, uh, myself. Um, but, uh, it, I, I have a hard time with high school age kids. Not, I, I love my kids, but in general, um, I don't know. My wife would, I remember one time we were sitting somewhere in the car in traffic and my wife looks over, it was like a in and out burger or something like that. And she looked at him, she's like, those kids are so adorable. And I'm like, where those high school punks over there, you know, like anybody who teaches high school age kids, I just take my hat off to, I think it's, um, I think it's awesome. Anyway. So, so she taught while I was in school and then we flipped. Um, and so I went to work and I went to go work at, at a, at a um, law firm, corporate law firm. And, in New York city. And she went, um, back to grad school. And then, um, we, it was a short time. So we were there for a few years. Um, we both loved living in Manhattan. Um, Jennifer was doing a, a master's, um, program and it was at a teacher's college there. And, and it was like night school because everyone was teaching during the day and, uh, all the classes were in the evening. And so she just had all day to go to museums and restaurants and really enjoy New York. Um, I had a totally different existence. I was a low, lowly corporate associate, you know, and uh, Matt, I saw like my pillow, the subway, the office, and then, you know, lunches and dinners, um, <laughs> exhausting, um, out at, you know, steakhouses and kind of that, that kind of stuff, which was fun for, for the first few times. And then it's just like, I just want to go home and hang out with my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was exciting. Um, the people that I, that I worked there, I'm still friends with, with a number of them, um, we're like superhuman lawyers and, uh, you know, they could go like three days without sleep and they were so into what they were doing. And I just, I, you know, I was sitting there going, you know, I don't know if I see myself doing this that long. And it was a little scary cause I'd kind of, you know, gone and put everything towards, towards, um, you know, being a lawyer. And there was a little bit of sadness that kind of crept in during that time where I would, you know, on a Monday morning or a Sunday night, there's so many times where I'd get called on a Sunday night, I have to go into the office on a Sunday, just get to get ready for what was going to happen on Monday if we we're working on some big deal. Um, and uh, I was sad and I was, I, it, it, it was interesting because there was adrenaline. There was definitely, you know, the stuff that we were, I was, I was as low, I mean, I was the low man on the totem pole. I was correcting commas and things like that. But hmm. the stuff that we were working on was all front page of the Wall Street Journal, you know, kind of deals. They're, they're the biggest deals happening in, in, the, in the financial world. And so it was, it, there was some adrenaline, but there was always that sadness too, that the adrenaline couldn't overcome. And so I was sitting there going, wow, what is this? I wonder... I wonder what this means. You know, I was just in the first few years of moving from the academic world to the to the working world. So, you know, my head was kind of swimming with a lot of different things. You know, it's a huge transition for men um, going from school to work. And uh, so I didn't know what to make of it. Um, but um, can I, there, can I um, interrupt you for a second there? Because yeah, I, sure. I, I feel like I'd like to hear you expand on that a little bit. You say it's a huge transition for men. Why men in yeah. particular? Yeah. So I. OK, so. I'll, I'll ask for the, uh, you know, my social media manager always refers to the um, umbrella of mercy. So when she says something, like, umbrella of mercy, you know, like go easy on me. So I'm, I'm going to ask for the umbrella of mercy right now. So watching my daughter, who is just about to enter high school, I look at the issues that girls face, women face um, through their teen years and into their 20 years as like life and death. In, incredibly tough things. Am I beautiful? You know, and, and I, I see my daughter having to face, you know, sort of these, these existential questions of like, do I have any worth, you know? Um, yeah. And it comes so early and it, it is such a, it's, it's such a weight for women to, um, to bear at such an early age. 
my experience during that those years and the experience of my boys is like, I don't know, you know, well, I'm, I'm good, you know, <laughs> like I'm not dealing with, I'm not dealing with these kind of life and death um, issues um, at that age. But when- Speaking as a former teenage boy, it, it really was kind of a sweet deal where you could be a sociopath all the time because you aren't old enough to know what a, a sociopath is. It was great. <laughs> and everyone just figures, oh, you're a teenager, so you can't be a no, sociopath. No one expects you to have empathy for anyone. So yeah, yeah. no, okay. Everyone's like, he's not a sociopath. He's just a teenager. No, but, and so, but, but, uh, you know, for myself and for a lot of the, I've been in men's ministry for, for, you know, for, I don't know, probably since 19, uh, no, since about 2000, 2005, something like that. So, um, and watching, you know, you know, my sons and, and watching, you know, my nephews go through this period of time, friends going through this period of time where it's that transition from, from academics to work. Um, it feels like that's when men start facing those life and death issues. Those kind of, you know, do I, am am I, am I, do, am I worth anything? Do I have any value in the world? Because for men, the question often is, you know, do I have what it takes to, to be a man? And, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen. You're not having that question. And as a senior in high school, maybe not even a senior in college, but you absolutely are when you're sitting there saying, I'm, I can't get a job or Mm -hmm. I'm not getting a job like my friend got, or, you know, I'm embarrassed because, you know, of, of, you know, the, 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 the job that I did have to take, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah. so um, it's, or shoot, what I was, what I was dealing with was just like, I don't know if I have what it takes to, to be a part of this world that I've just jumped in with both feet, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so there's just a lot of scary stuff for the very first time. That was my experience. I don't know if that's true for, for everybody, but there's some truth in that, you know? And, yeah. and so yeah. anyway, I, like I said, my head was spinning around that time. I, yeah. uh, and so that sadness was just kind of like, oh, okay, there's the sadness over there. I got, but I got so much going on. I'm not even going to think about it. And so I got into the habit, which I got really good at is just putting my head down and grinding and just not thinking about it too much, you know? Mm. So I thought um, you were gonna, I thought you were going to say putting my head down and napping and I was totally going to be on board with that, but, um, <laughs> that's so funny. I was doing no napping back then, but I'm a, I am a professional napper. I get so much, I get so much crap about it around my house. Um, about, you know, except, except for my 16 year old son who, who will do it every once in a while, but I, I'm always, you know, pulling out the, the Churchill, you know, example or the Ronald Reagan example, or so, you know, people who sort of, I admire who were, who were fellow nappers. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so we were in New York. I, my yeah. was, I was, you know, my world was chaotic and and exciting and sad and and confusing. And so, um, I there were a few things that kind of conspired to get us back to California. One was Jennifer and I were, you know, newly married, and we were thinking about having kids at that point. We had probably been married for maybe going on four or five years. So we were thinking about having kids and all of our family was back here in California. And then it was like 1998, 1999, 2000 and Silicon Valley was in the middle of the internet boom, soon to be bust. Um, But it was like party time when I would come back here. um... (laughs) Yeah. It felt like, it felt like a party. Like you would, I would come back and I'm like, this is not where I grew up. This is like, Every day is like a Friday afternoon, evening, you know, I mean, everyone's, you know, it was crazy. And so 
I had a lot of friends in New York who were leaving great jobs at investment banks and law firms and other places to go start companies in Silicon Valley. And so I'm sitting there going, wow, this is my home. Like, this is where my network is. My dad had been an entrepreneur and was an investor in, in uh, high tech companies. And I just was like, man, I don't know if I want to miss out on this. And my dad was also whispering in my ear saying, hey, come back, we'll do some stuff together. And I thought, maybe this is, you know, good. You know, I like, it sounds exciting. It's it's kind of what I want to do. Um, and maybe it's an answer to that sadness, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was slight. Like when I say sadness, it was just a little bit at that point. Mm-hmm. Enough for me to notice, barely, mm-hmm. and, and to and to kind of go, huh, and then kind of just get on with my day. Um, so anyway, we, again, we didn't use a U-Haul, um, but uh, we did drive back across the country. And we, you know, that was t- 2000 when we got here. And within a few months, the internet bubble burst and then the telecom bubble burst right after that. And so um, it was it was a crazy time. Uh, so I came back to invest in high tech companies. That's what I was going to do. I, 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 you know, passed the bar exam in New York City. I never took the bar exam in California. So I haven't practiced law for 20 years. Um, so... Uh, so then I spent the next, you know, 15 years investing in typical, you know, kind of startups, high tech companies. Usually, you know, it started out kind of on semiconductors and networking. Um, and then and then over time, we um, moved towards kind of, you know, enterprise software to consumer software to, you know, mobile apps and that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, I, you know, I did that and it was fun. It was, I got to invest in some amazing people. Um, it's quite a thing to sort of have, you know, I mean, the, you know, they're really, really smart people who come to Silicon Valley to start companies and I get to sort of pick and choose who I want to invest in and who I, who I believe in. Um, it was great. And these are small companies. We focused on really small companies, really new, really brand new companies. And so, it just felt very pure. the the um, The incentives are kind of right. I mean, people are people are you know working because they're ambitious and and sometimes ignoring families and putting everything into their work. But uh, and so there's that's not great. There's not a ton of balance. But on the other hand, you're not into sort of a bureaucratic organization where there's you know kind of all of the dysfunction around a larger organization. Everyone's kind of, everyone's kind of has, has this kind of blue sky, you know, approach, like anything's possible. And that was, that was exciting. So um, that was a pretty big change from New York then, right? Or that was, that was very different. I mean, the, yeah. the, the deals that I was working on in New York were, you know, like a big European company wants to buy a chemical plant or something or, or, or IPOs, you know, we were, we were doing IPOs as well. Um, and so, I was working with other lawyers, um, in-house lawyers at these large, you know, multinational companies. Um, here it was, you know, you know, sometimes it was, you know, teams in their twenties, sometimes it was teams in their thirties, but they were young folks who were just like, anything's possible, which is really fun. But there was a little bit of that sadness. It was almost imperceptible, but it grew day by day. And after about 10 years of that, I was kind of drowning in it. And and I felt like, you know, like, wow, what's going on? You know, because and I, I looked a lot of different places, you know, I was sitting there trying to make sense of this, putting a lot into ambition and achievement and uh, planning and then executing on those plans, you know, to try to build a venture firm. You know, I started, I started one. Uh, my dad was a partner and we had a third partner and I wanted to build it into something really big and really great and really excellent. And, um, and so I put a lot into it thinking that was going to solve some of that sadness because I do like building things. I really enjoy, um, you know, starting and building things. So, uh, I was sitting there, you know, six, seven, eight years in going, 
what's the deal? Like, why am I having to will myself out of bed on a Monday morning to go to a job that a lot of people want? You know, these mm-hmm. there were lots of kids coming out of Stanford Business School and Harvard Business School that wanted to be venture capitalists and there weren't enough positions. And so, you know, people would come to us and say, hey, can I work for free? You know, can we, you know, just to get my foot in the door and that kind of thing. And I'm sitting there going, I should be grateful for this. And I, and I am in a sense, very grateful for that time because it was good preparation. But, um, but I was, there was a ton of discontent and, uh, it's funny looking back now, things are very different now. My wife will say, I didn't know you were so sad. And I, I, I I'll respond like, I didn't either. Like, I think it was just mm. that put your head down and grind thing. Like I just yeah. didn't think about it. I yeah. knew I needed to be a provider. I knew I needed to be, you know, I knew, you know, so anyway, that was, that was kind of the state of things. Um, I was isolated. I didn't have a lot of close friends at a lot of friends. I didn't have a lot of close friends. Um, I, uh, uh, we were going to church. My wife and I were leading some stuff at church. We led some mission trips and we led some couples groups and things like that. But I was pretty isolated. Nobody really knew me at that point. Um, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the backstory up until when I made the big change my mind, you know? Yeah. So. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, I, you know, I think we've all probably all been there, um, of having really unpleasant emotions that are affecting us badly and still being barely aware of them. Um, I guess I, I, what I, what I want to ask you next, I guess, is, is like, when did you start to understand this? <laughs> you call it a sadness. Like, what, when did you start to notice it? When did you start to unravel it to, to try to figure it out? What, how did that happen? So I don't think, I think that happened much more recently that I was able to actually look back on it and understand it. In the moment, I don't think I understood a ton about it. Though, Sounds like you're about as in touch with your emotions as I am. Then, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a. I, I don't know how familiar Ten you are. years after that, you're like, oh yeah, that's why I felt that way. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how familiar you are with the enneagram, but I'm an I'm an eight on the enneagram, and I just convert all emotions into anger, and so um, I don't. I, I'm not familiar with any of the range of emotions, so I, you know, very sort well, of. I like my five-year-old then. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So um, there was a moment though, where I couldn't hide from it anymore. So um, I, okay. So I'm going to tell you about sort of two moments. So um, I had some friends who were, who were saying, you know, Hey, you should join a men's group. And I thought, look, I am so busy. We're doing a bunch of stuff. I can't do something else. Plus my wife and I were leading a couples group and that would, yeah. you know, I, I can't be in sort of two church groups, um, yeah. no time. And so I, I held them off for probably about two years until there was, it was, I remember, I can remember sort of what it felt like at least it was, it was a, it was only, it was, it's, it's funny. It started at 5 PM. Like what kind of men's group starts at 5 p.m.? I don't even know why anyone was showing up. Like who can show up at 5 p.m.? It's right in the middle of dinner time if you are home. Most guys are still at work, especially around here. I mean, geez. So I don't know. Anyway, it was at 5 p.m. It was a great group. I walked over. It was cold. It was January and it was dark. So it was, it was like the, you know, it was like the, you know, few days in California that get dark at five during the winter. And, but I do remember it was dark. Like I went over here in Wisconsin, but 
my 18 year old is about to head to, to Madison, actually, if, if oh, yeah? school starts. Yeah, he's going to study computer science at the University of Wisconsin. Good job. All right. Right on. Yeah. yeah. So he's super excited to go there. And we keep telling him it's going to be cold. And he's like, I love the cold. And we're like, OK. <laughs> I mean, there, there are two months out of the year where the sun sets at like 430 in the afternoon. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> So, anyway. I, so, yeah, so I, 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 I dragged myself over to this conference, conference room where this men's group um, was and sat down and I knew a few of the guys had said hello and just kind of sat there and watched this sort of easy banter around the room. And I, th- I thought that was interesting. And then they got rolling and guys started talking about stuff that nobody in my world ever talked about. People were talking about <laughs> pornography. They were talking about alcohol, struggles with alcohol, struggles with lots of different kinds of addictions, workaholism. They were talking about their wives in a way that was so like honoring and owning of your own junk. Like it was all these guys sort of, I don't know, just being men in a way that I'd never seen men be men before. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of vulnerability, lots of sort of, you know, just integrity, not in terms of like doing the right thing, but like owning stuff and being having you know um taking taking accountability for for their part in broken relationships and things like that and being willing to apologize like like not a not a flippant apology but like a full apology with all the pieces that a human apology should have um you know and so i was like wow these guys are different and and um it scared me it absolutely just scared the daylights out of me because i knew that if i'm going to stay here I'm going to have to live in a much more transparent way than I had ever in my life. And, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, there was a lot of life there. So mm-hmm. I stayed, I haven't been out of kind of men's community since then. That was around uh, 2005. And mm-hmm. um, that was a big deal for me. That was like rescue. It was the very first time that that discontent was being dealt with. It didn't go away immediately, but it was, it started to be dealt with in, in community with other men. I started talking about it and guys, you know, God started doing things in my life. Um, including. Yeah. 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 I was, I was going to say like, can you, can you tell me some of the things God started doing in your life? But it sounded like you were going to. So yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do all of it. So I'll tell, I'll put a bookmark and try to remember what I was going to say, cause it's important and it will answer your, your question of sort of understanding some of the, some of the sadness. Um, but, uh, some of the stuff that he was doing. So, um, I realized very quickly that I had been taking all of my questions, these sort of important questions that a man or a human being asks, what is real? What is right? Who am I? You know, what should I be doing with my life? I'd been taking those to culture since I was, since I could, since I even knew the questions to ask. So it started probably in grade school, you know, with, with very simple questions, but really ramped up in high school and college and then in law school. And um, never thought to, even though I was going to church every week and I had a relationship with God, especially during that sort of tough time when my mom was sick and after she passed away, um, I had never taken them to God and started asking those questions and certainly never expected an answer. Um, And through sort of prayer and community and men sort of speaking truth and saying, hey, this is what we see in you. I mean, you know, I'm somebody who believes that the Holy Spirit lives inside us. And so when another man speaks, the Spirit can speak through that person into me and Mm -hmm. ask these questions that I had struggled with for so long and had left me so discontented started to be answered, not in ways that I expected and certainly not with the timing that I wanted, but they started to be answered. And it was like, my heart was, it was almost, it felt 
it felt fragile to me because I felt like don't take it away because mm. like, and that, that was the, the, you know, one of my friends said, whatever you so Okay. So let me tell you about the moment around sort of understanding some of this sadness. So I was at a point where, um, I was going to have to raise another venture fund and I was probably about 10 months late. So the, the idea with, with, with venture capital is you, you raise a bunch of money and then you invest that money over time. And then as companies, you know, do an IPO or, or get acquired, you pay back the money to your investors. And so you kind of need to do series of funds, you, you know, because, um, you know, you, you, you raise it, you, you invest it, you need to have more money to invest. So you raise another fund and then you invest and then you invest that and then you raise another fund and they're sort of overlapping. So I was about 10 months late on raising the third fund because I couldn't do it. My heart couldn't do it. And I knew I had bills to pay and I just couldn't do it. My heart just wasn't engaging with it. It wasn't, it was just like, don't, don't do this to me. You know, it's like my head saying, we got to do this. And my heart saying, don't do this to me. So I, out of desperation, I went to the, this men's group and said, Hey guys, I need to hijack the group tonight. Bear with me. I know that we don't usually do this, but let me do this tonight. I'm <laughs> And I felt, you know, silly doing it, but I said, I, I have to, like, you guys have to do this for me. And so I spent about 45 minutes telling them what, where my heart was and, you know, and everything. And, and then I just kind of left things open uh, for them to ask questions. And, and, you know, it wasn't, it was never a group of, of advice giving, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it certainly was a group of discussion and open questions and that kind of thing and prayer. We did a lot of prayer. Mm-hmm. And um, so I stopped and two of my closest friends, um, two, one of whom is a very, very close friend today, they looked at each other and said, whatever you do. Oh, and I, okay. So I laid it out. Sorry. I laid it out and said, I can, I can raise another fund. I can start a company, meaning kind of a, you know, high tech startup, or I could do something in ministry. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what that meant at that point. <laughs> I seriously, I, I was thinking like start an orphanage somewhere. Cause we had done some mission trips. And so I was thinking that, and, um, that was the I only mean, I'm sure a lot of people work in ministry and have no idea what doing something in ministry means. So <laughs> <laughs> very true. Um, so to, these two friends looked at each other and they said almost in unison, they, they like knew just by looking at each other, they just knew what the other one was saying. And they looked at me and they don't know each other that well. They know me really well, but they didn't know each other that well. They looked at me and they said, whatever you do, you need to be writing. Hmm. And I thought my first reaction is, Come on, the, you know, the, I had I had published a book uh, on venture capital in 2002, wow. and so I knew you know enough about the economics of the publishing world to know that that's difficult. You know, if I have yeah. a family of five, we're living in Silicon Valley with the cost of living that's just insane. Mm-hmm. How am I going to be able to do that? And I said that, mm-hmm. and and one of the one of my friends looked at me and said, "I think you need to not worry about that." Hmm. And I just, it just floored me. It was like, it felt like the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I said, okay. I said, okay, with my mouth. I said, okay, with my heart. I came home and said that to my wife. And she's like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, hang on. What? How are we? What? You know? And uh, I said, I'm going to be writing. And it's, and, and it felt like rescue so much to me because it seemed like an answer to the sadness and the discontent. Um, that uh, that it didn't feel like a brave thing for me to do, mm-hmm. leave that world. And I knew I was leaving at that point. Mm-hmm. After that night, I knew I was on my way out. I think I probably knew somewhere deep down 
much earlier than that, but I wasn't, my head didn't know it at all um, mm-hmm. until that night. And it felt like rescue. So a lot of people will say, Hey, you left, you know, you know, these careers to go start ministry. Wow. That's really amazing. And I think it's amazing that Jesus sort of said, Hey buddy, I have a place and a position for you in my kingdom and I need you. Mm-hmm. When I was sitting there going, where do I even fit? I'm so discontented. Does this make any sense? What am I doing with my life? So it felt like rescue. Um, my wife, you know, she was she's a writer too, and she was she was writing a blog back then. And we, uh, you know, about a month of her kind of having a big crisis around you know fear and identity, and you know, I was married to a guy who's doing this, and now I'm going to be married to a guy who's doing ministry, and if and maybe I'll join him, and we'll do it together. But that means fundraising, and I'm not so you know comfortable with fundraising and i said honey i've been i've been fundraising since you know since i started in venture capital and so this, you know this is 10 or 12 years in at this point like don't worry about fundraising we can do that and she said that's the worst going and having to ask people for money but she got over that and we started we started gather ministries at that point and um i don't know that was the time that was during that time that very sort of rich time of community of being fully known these guys knew everything about my life there's actually one night i'm kind of rambling here but an important point here um uh there was one time where i heard a sermon uh at the church that i was going to um it was an associate pastor it wasn't it wasn't sort of the head pastor it was associate pastor it was it was preaching one one uh sunday and he said i don't remember what the sermon was about but i remember this one line from the sermon he said there shouldn't be anything in your life that somebody doesn't know. Hmm. And I thought, wow, there's so much in my life that nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I said, okay, I grabbed a friend from this men's group and said, hey, would you do this with me? He had no idea what he was getting into, but uh, I said, will you do this with me? Let's write down every unconfessed sin that you can think of. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Everything. Everything since everything you can ever think of for the whole life, you know, and I thought we'll get together tomorrow and talk about it. Well, he couldn't get together the next day or the next day. It turned out about a week of, Hmm. of, and every day, every conversation, my wife knew what I was doing. Every conversation with her, every conversation with family members, something else would come up and it was horrific. It was just like, oh, another (laughs) thing. Oh my gosh. And I actually about midweek that he couldn't get together or was he just trying to avoid this conversation? <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. I, I know if that, that was me, I'd be like, yeah, I can't do it tomorrow. <laughs> can't do it the day after. <laughs> I wanted to get it done. I was like, I'm doing it. And dude, yeah, no, like, it I- every, <laughs> seriously, every hour that passed, I would add something to the list and just be like, oh man, <laughs> like if I could just do it, I could just be like, okay, this, what's on the page and kind of everything else, you know? Mm-hmm. But the longer it went, it was one page and then two pages and three pages. And so <laughs> about two or three days in, I, I, I ran into a pastor, an, a, actually an, another pastor at the same church. And, he, and I told him what was going on. And he said, hey, let me pray for you. So he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, Lord, I just pray that Justin has amazing recall. that He just remembers everything. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm gonna deck this guy, you know? Yeah, worst yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Still number one worst prayer of all time. <laughs> so anyway, I we finally got together and we sat in the conference room of the of the uh, office where our venture firm was, and um, 
it was in the evening, no one was there. And I read everything to him. And it's so hard giving voice to these things. You know, I, I just, you know, full transparency, I'd struggled a lot with pornography ever since my mom was, you know, sick during those, during those years up into, up into, into my marriage and, and into adulthood. And so there was a lot of just, you know, stuff that I'd never told anybody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was just, it was the worst. My body, my mind, everything saying, don't do it. You know, confession is so hard. Like my palms are sweating. My mind, my heart is beating. You know, my mind is saying, don't do it, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm doing it. I've committed to doing it. I'm going to do this thing. So I, I read it. It was really difficult. I was very halting, you know? I was like, oh, another thing, another thing, another thing. And I was, I had a hard time looking the guy in the eye. Um, his mm-hmm. name was Mike. I had a really hard time looking Mike in the eyes, but I couldn't not look him in the eyes because I kept checking to see, are you moving away from me or are you moving towards me? Hmm. Yeah. And so we're done. And he sort of, you know, as we all get to do, um, we get to, you know, stand in as Jesus and say, you know, you're forgiven. And it was the greatest moment. It was, it Hmm. was, it was, it was a marker in my life of just being fully known. Like there's nothing else that I could come up with that um, I need to confess and somebody in my life knows. And it was Mm -hmm. great. And so I moved into a, you know, into a different way of living and with where I I had a bunch of guys who knew me all the way, even the worst stuff and still loved me. And it took shame and it just like crushed it in a way that I had never been able to crush shame before. And so there was just a ton of freedom in that. So all of this is stuff that sort of that men's group was doing for me. It was amazing. It was an amazing Mm -hmm. life. They were also speaking a ton of other identity into me. This is who we see you, you know, this is what you're great at, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was just really, it was cool. It was a really, really rich time. And so, um, I, you know, I, when, when, when I felt like, you know, it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me around writing again, um, I hadn't written anything for probably eight years, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, but when these, when these friends said, whatever you do, you need to be writing again, it felt like such rescue that I was like, well, I am not going to write about business anymore. What I want to mm-hmm. do, because this has been such a gift to me, I want to write to other men and try to give this gift to as many people as I possibly can. And so that's kind of been, you know, kind of the guiding motivation, I guess, ever since, sure. ever since that time. I guess I'm wondering if, if you want to talk some, and if, if this isn't an interesting story, um, that's fine. We don't have to go down that, that road, but I, I want to know if, if you can talk some about kind of the process of setting up a ministry, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit, you, you talked a little bit about how ministry quote unquote is kind of this vague nebulous term. So I, I'm just, I'm kind of wondering how you arrived at what this ministry was going to be for you and how you put it together, how you got the funds together. Do you want to talk about that a little bit or? Yeah, no, no, totally great. Um, so, you know, I spent 15 years working with companies and, um, helping them grow and helping them be healthy and that kind of thing. And so I took, I, you know, I was great preparation for starting a business, you know, we're a mm-hmm. corporation and we have to, you know, we have budgets and we have goals and, you know, strategic plans and that kind of thing. And so, um, I just took everything that I knew from, from that and applied it to ministry. And so when I talk to other folks running ministries, um, we talk about very different things. The language they use is different than the language that I use. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know how, the, how how other people do it, honestly. Um, I, I feel like I don't get, uh, just because I'm not wired in the same way, not that it's, that, and, and, you know, I'm not saying at all that anybody else was doing it wrong. I'm just doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So um, we started out, um, both of us, so Jennifer, uh, you know, during kind of the, 
I don't know, maybe kind of 2003 to 2008 or nine. She was blogging and there, there was a real explosion of, of women Christian bloggers during that time. It was a very rich community. And she was a part of that. And um, but, you know, we had three young kids. Um, Jackson was born in 2001. Oliver was born in 2003. And then Abby was born in 2006. So um, Jennifer was super busy. We were both super busy. She was especially busy during that time, but she was blogging. And um, so she, when we said, hey, we should team up uh, and do something together because we're speaking on similar things. We're speaking around the same struggles and fears, though Jennifer would always write to women and I would, I had started out writing to men. The demographic other than gender is, is identical. Um, and the fears and the struggles are the same. And so maybe we should team up and we said, great. And so we both started doing what we naturally knew how to do, which Jennifer was, you know, writing on her blog and I was starting a book project. Sure. So the book industry had changed drastically between 2002 and probably 2000, I don't know, 10, um, you know, in 2002, it was all, all about getting a physical book on a physical truck to a physical bookstore. <laughs> and you did that by getting on a, on a list, you know, yeah, the bookstores yeah. had lists and libraries had lists. And that was, that was kind of the trick, you know, in 2010, it was about the author using social media to, mm-hmm. to, to build a platform and to sell books to that platform. And so we started, like, like I said, Jen was working on our blog. I'm working on a book and we're sitting there going, wait, wait, what are we doing? So we put the we we put put everything on pause, and um, we spent some times some time months really uh, asking who are our people, um, who do our hearts break for, what is ours to do? You know, I mean, Jesus sort of kicked off this massive, you know, kind of restoration project two thousand years ago. You know, righting every wrong, um, setting everything right. Where where do we play in this? What did what what did God dream that we would do? What what's our what's our role? And and that included who to who who's our heartbreak for? Because we had this crazy experience when both of us went to Ethiopia. Our kids were very young. Abby was like eighteen months old, and uh, the Holy Spirit just one day in church. Jennifer was looking at the. Uh, the bulletin and she leans over and goes, Hey, I think we're going to Africa. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, 18 months old. We have two, you know, that means uh-huh. Oliver's like, you know, Oliver's three and Jackson's five, you know? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I look at the bulletin and the, and the Holy spirit just kind of nudged me and I go, Oh my gosh, we're going to Africa. And so we did, we went to Ethiopia and it was, it was one of the mile markers in, in answering this question. It was a very important experience to answer this question. Who do our hearts break for? Who are our people? Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were in Africa, I felt like our hearts were moved, and we saw things that that were just um, heartbreaking and beautiful and amazing. And we've gone back two more times, uh, two more mm-hmm. times with our kids. Um, but God kept talking about to us, whispering into our hearts, you know, not audibly, but just sort of thoughts that would come, and and where our the state of our hearts at that point were just very focused on people back home and how there are more broken hearts and broken lives within a five mile radius of our church than there are with a, within a five mile radius of this village that we're visiting, even though they didn't, you know, there was extreme poverty. There was just a purity in Mm -hmm. Africa that just wasn't there around Menlo park, California, you know? And so, um, we, we kept thinking, what is going on? Like we're in Africa, we're ready for just, you know, like our hearts to break, like wide open and they were moved. And it was a great experience. It was a, it was a wonderful experience, but 
why are our hearts breaking for all those folks back home? And so it took years later when Jennifer and I were doing this process, going through this process of saying, who are our people? Did we look back on that and said, oh, God was speaking then. And those are our people. So they're busy, professional, tech savvy, you know, folks that are trying to check a lot of life's boxes. Um, and, and, and if they do, you know, there's a lie underneath all of that, that when I have the right title, the right number in my bank account, you know, the right house in the right neighborhood, I'm taking the right vacations, I have the right friends, then everything will be great. Mm. And there are a lot of us out there who are believing that. And so that's kind of what the ministry was focused on. We really, we really kind of said at first we said thirty-five to fifty-five. Now, um, for some reason, younger folks read our stuff as well, so we we market to folks that are kind of twenty-five to fifty-five. Um, but it's all all around kind of that that issue of there's there's a lot more here, and um, culture's trying to trying to sell you a bill of goods, and uh, there's only one source, and and you can do what you're doing. Do you know if you're a man working at a software company or working at a you know, a book publisher working wherever, you know, you can do that. Um, you don't have to change your job, but God can get a hold of your heart and you, he can really light you up and, and you know, and uh, you can live an entirely different type of life. Um, and so that's that's kind of, you know, what we started doing. And so we spent about a year um, building a platform. So we started a devotional. Uh, Wire is for men and uh, Loop is for women. They go out twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And they're short, super concise. You know, they kind of respect very bu- the, the time of very busy folks, but it but it does give um, you know men and women the opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit into their life. And so we just used everything that I knew about growing companies into growing those growing those platforms. So that was kind of the early years of of Gather Ministries. And then we went back to writing books, and then we went out you know to other stuff. But it was really about building that platform and figuring out kind of who are the right who are the people and what do they need. Um, you know, one thing that I I was um, highly aware of in backing um, you know venture companies um, was that uh, you don't you don't have a ton of money. I mean, even even the best capitalized you know startup doesn't have enough money to change the behavior of a lot of people. And you want to sell your you know your product or your service to a lot of people. Um, you have to be Google or Apple or Facebook or something like that to actually change behavior, to have enough money to change behavior, to convince people to do something different. Yeah. Um, so, for, so for startups, you want to, you really want to um, encourage, you want to give some, you want to give them a service or a product that makes, that, that's, you know, everyone talks about, you know, cheaper, better, faster, but doing something that they're already doing. And so that's, that's what a lot of what Jen and I do is, is give people, you hope, you know, as much as we can using technology, but we're writers at the end of the day, giving people mm-hmm. tools that they can use that aren't going to ask them to change behavior. So I never tell men to slow down. I give them stuff that in the busy, in the very busy, busiest of days that they can still connect with God uh, using the tool that I give them. And so um, that's another sort of um, important, you know, thing that we have built into the kind of the fabric of gather. Mm-hmm. I want to push on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> yep. I, I'm curious, like hearing you talk about your, you know, your busyness throughout your, um, your, your time in New York and then your, your time in Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, you make it sound like this busyness for busyness's own sake was like, eating you alive. <laughs> and then, and then you say, well, this, this ministry we do is, is designed to fit into people's lives and let them be as busy as they want. And I'm just like, right. is that like, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's the case of setting realistic goals, but I, I'm like, is that really the direction you want to yeah. go? Yeah, no, no, it's a great question. So what I mean is that I don't think that's my role is to say, mm-hmm. slow down. 
I don't think I am prepared. I don't think I have been prepared to make that case very well. There are lots of authors out there. There are great pastors who can, from the pulpit, say, you need to slow down. I... I would much rather give men the opportunity to connect with God in their in their in the midst of their busyness and let the Holy Spirit work in their lives. Look, when when I give you know uh, a devotional to a man on a Monday morning, it's really an opportunity. You can you know wire is super short, so you can read it in you know three minutes standing in line in Starbucks when we used to do that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And, and, and it's really a window for some, for somebody to connect with God. And I've gotten, you know, it goes out to, you know, 105,000 guys on a Monday and 105,000 guys on a Thursday and then starts again the next week. I've gotten a lot of stories back of that, you know, like when the Holy Spirit is involved, there can be a magnification. So it could be a bad devotional. You know, Paul talks about that when he talks, you know, when he talks about, you know, starting the church at Corinth, like the very first time he's like, I said all the wrong stuff. I'm grossly paraphrasing here, but he's like, I said all the wrong things and I come back later and the church is thriving and I know that the Holy Spirit was involved. So mm-hmm. like in the secular world, you have to be good. You know, if you do, if you do a venture back startup, like it better be a good product or you're going to die. But I could put out, a, you know, do the best job I can with a devotional, but there's a magnifying effect that happens. So if I can get a man to open up a devotional and, and connect for and talk, she's talking a language that he's used to, talking a language of the marketplace rather than churchy language, you know, and just sort of connect with the fear. Just talk right to him, right to his heart. What are you feeling on this Monday morning? The Holy Spirit connects with that man. He's, you know, we do, we, we, what we, what we do is we, we always say we're, we're in, in the world of discipleship, not evangelism. So we write to folks that are, you know, in some form following Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit can move in that moment. And if, if that, if what is right for that person is to slow down, the Holy Spirit will take care of that. If, if that person has obligations in this season that are good, like being a dad and, and having a job and having a mortgage where he can't slow down right now, that's fine too. Like the Holy Spirit will deal with that. And so, um, I just trust, like I'm doing my piece and, it could have been that I was given the piece to to say slow down, but I wasn't. You know, mm. I, I've done enough identity work um, at this point, asking a lot of questions of my heavenly dad. You know, of who who did you make me to be and what did you make me to do? Um, that I know this is my this is what I was prepared for. All right. Well, we're um, nearing the hour mark, so I'm going to try to get us through the last handful of questions here. Um, I would. Uh, one thing I uh, try to ask all my guests uh, to conclude is, you know, aside from your new beliefs, or I don't know if new beliefs is even the right word here, but you know what I mean. Aside from your your new beliefs themselves, what you say, what would you say you learned from this experience? I mean, a ton. I think yeah. I, I, I mean, so much about myself. I think I had no idea who I was. I, I honestly think I don't have any idea who I was. Mm-hmm. I knew who I felt culture wanted me to be. And it's funny. So my, my uh, teenage years were very um, against everything. I mean, it was just my stance against the world was, was just against everything. Sounds um, like pretty typical teenage years then. Yeah, it was pretty extreme. So I, I was, you know, again, my mom was, my mom was dying. This person who just, you know, meant the world to me. She was amazing. Mm-hmm. She was, she was cool and fierce and and just awesome. She was always the coolest person to walk in any room. And she and I were best buds. And and she's mm-hmm. dying, you know, and it, it sucked. And so I was, you know, during my later high school years, I was drinking a lot, you know, and just you know going to 
parties and drinking and thinking that was that was awesome um and getting in fist fights i got in a ton of fist fights and so you know just like it's is a mess I, I i graduated from high school late and um just it was a mess i was cutting school like you wouldn't believe and, and then i kind of turned that around you know changed my mind about that and i started doing it felt so good after that period of time to just just you know do what culture expected me to so, uh, you know, got into a great school uh, for college, um, you know, went to a great law school, went to, you know, uh, one of the, you know, premier law firms in the world in New York. And it just felt like the world was patting me on the back saying, well done. And I just, I loved it. I just, I love kind of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, none of it was who I was designed to be. You know, none of that was, I wasn't learning at all, nothing about my, my true self. I was just doing what, what the world was telling me to do. Mm-hmm. So during, you know, that time of, of really kind of that huge pivot that I made in my life, that pivot was around asking who, who am I, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I say, through, through this, you know, men's group, um, and, you know, through scripture and study and silence and solitude and, and, uh, um, you know, worship, I, God started answering in crazy ways, conversations with my wife, thoughts that I would have while I was brushing my teeth in the morning, things just started falling into place in a way, you know, again, not with the timing that I want, not certainly not the way that I would have expected them to, but they started answering, you know, those questions started to be answered. Um, the first book that was, that came out before Odyssey, um, is called invention and it's all about identity. It was just, it was my, my, you know, my, story and the stories of a bunch of other men around identity and, you know, answering these questions in various ways. So mm-hmm. that was one thing. The other thing I, I learned was just who God is for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I get that some of your listeners might not be Christians, but for me, I didn't know God at all. I didn't mm-hmm. know who he was. Uh, you know, I talk about that in Odyssey quite a bit. I had no idea. I thought he was, you know, somebody who was good in, in a, in a sense, but, um, was sort of good in in and of him, like because of who he was alone, he was good. He was holy, but he wasn't good in relation to me because I felt like he was disappointed in me all the time. I felt like you know the all those sermons that I sat through, and I sat through a lot of sermons because I, like I say, I can't remember a time when I didn't go to church. Mm-hmm. In Southern California and Philadelphia and New York City, I was always going to church. I'd always limp in somehow and mm-hmm. uh, heard a lot of sermons. And I just, I felt like God was always kind of disappointed. And mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, that's, you know, I, I learned that God's not disappointed, that he made me in love, for love, and he does love me. And I can't stop him. I can stop receiving i can i can stop you know like 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 a you know my son he could he can't stop me from loving him but he could mm-hmm. stop from he, himself from receiving the love he could sure. you know go off to college and never call me again but he doesn't mm-hmm. stop me from loving him and so when i started realizing how outrageously god loves me you know it didn't mm-hmm. dawn on me that you know here's a father who sent his own son to die for me so that sure. he wouldn't have to spend eternity without me or even this life without you know connection with me why i didn't get that that that's a father who loves a lot, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, the good news was kind of the ho-hum. Why do I want to spend eternity with somebody who doesn't really like me? Mm-hmm. So during this time, after this pivot, I started realizing, whoa, like there was a journey that I went on Odyssey. The book is all about, you know, kind of spiritual pilgrimages or sacred journeys. And there was one that I went on where God showed me how much he loves me. And it, it, you know, geez, it 
it just blew me away. I can, you know, it was, it was one of the most crazy six months periods of my life. Um, but, uh, that was fantastic. That was one thing I learned. So it was a lot about knowing me and about, and about knowing who he was. I mean, I think those are the most two, the two most important questions we can ask ever as human beings is who am I and who is God? And, um, man, he answered, you know, not everything, but enough. a lot. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, that's a good, um, that's a good segue into my, uh, three final questions that I, I try to ask all my guests. Um, because what we do here is ultimately about trying to get a handle on uh, ontology and epistemology. Um, and maybe you've touched on this already, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because this is what I do. Um, <laughs> what is identity? What do you think? What what defines identity? How do you know your identity? Where does your identity come from? Well, so I, you know, um, I have touched on it. Um, I don't yeah. have a ton more to say about it, but sure. I'll say that, you know, God, you know, it says in scripture that he set us as the focus of his love when he was setting the foundations of the earth. Mm-hmm. Like me personally, he had me in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that it wasn't just sort of human beings in mind, but this is God. I mean, you know, um, he's a father. It says so many times in scriptures that he's in, in the scriptures that he's our father and he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a father who's thinking a lot about each one of us and taking a lot of care. And then, you know, it says that he knit us together so carefully, like didn't kind of stamp us out on a clanking, you know, kind of assembly line, you know, but knit us together with his hands. There's a lot of time where he's thinking about who is this, you know, mm-hmm. Luke, who is this? Justin, who is this? What do I dream about him? When I create him this way, what do I dream he's going to do? You know, what impact, you know, any, any inventor, you know, imp, you know, creates with the idea of impact. They don't just create something, you know, for no use. They create dreaming of what the use is going to be for whatever this is. And so I, I just have that in mind that God has dreams about us. And geez, he's been dreaming for a long time. And so I believe identity is coming into alignment with that, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, you know, when we sort of start, like I, like I've been saying a bunch of times, when we start, you know, asking those questions of him, man, I, the, the, that alignment is so good. That disalignment is so hard. I think that a lot of my discontent was because I was moving in a different direction. I was like a machine made to do something and I was doing something completely else. It's completely different. You know, it's like trying to take, you know, so in, in with invention, it was, uh, the, um, a lot of stories told about the um, about uh, uh, industrial revolution era inventors because the whole idea is sort of he's the inventor and we're the invention. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the guys profiled um, is uh, is is uh, the inventor Otis. So he you know he he, he created Otis um, you know elevators. And in the book I'm talking about you know it's like I'm a, I'm a machine you know like a like an elevator designed to be an elevator and I'm trying to use an elevator as a boat, you know? That's not going to work. So I feel like so much of my life I was built to do one thing and being trying to just jam myself into some other function and it and it caused a lot of friction and it caused a lot of pain in my own life and in in the lives of the people around me because there was some frustration and anger that was leaking out into them as well. So um so that's that's my sort of take on identity is is it's what did what did my father dream? Um you know, scripture also says, you know, draw close to him and he'll give you the desires of his heart. I, I can say with, you know, a lot of certainty, as much certainty as any human being can muster in this kind of situation, but a lot of certainty, I can tell you that what I believe is that, uh, 
you know, I am doing much more today what what he dreamt that I would do. And it just feels good. It is the desires of my heart. Like when I was mm-hmm. sitting in that conference room and and those guys said, you should, whatever you do, you need to be writing. Part of me was like, that's, you know, the, the my head, you know, goes, you know, who's been so who's been soaking in culture for so long said, ah, you can't make money doing that. My heart said, oh, don't, don't mess with that. Don't tell me that if you're not, if that's not going to be true, you know, because it was so good because I do believe that that's something that God was dreaming that I would do. Mm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, as someone who's been on the receiving end of that as well, and knowing that it feels kind of like a sentence, <laughs> yeah. like, yes, I know I'm a good writer, but please don't make me devote my life to that because I'll never eat again if I do. Yeah, no, I know. Um, I know. I know the feel. I know that feel, bro. Um, (laughs) Second, what is, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Well, okay. So you are, um, you are asking questions that are above my pay grade. I'm not a philosopher. Um, I'm probably embarrassing myself by answering these, but I will answer them and I'll answer them with some confidence because that's what I do. Um, So human nature, I mean, look, I I can tell you in my experience, I I believe there has been sort of a, within myself, um, a, there's, there's a, there's a competition or a, uh, a, I don't know what you'd call it. There's a, there's sort of a war within myself. There is the physical part of me which I would equate with human nature, that um, is very self-centered and very selfish and um, very focused on solving needs now, right? And so when I started self-medicating, when my mom was sick and I was in high school with pornography, also with food, it was just like, don't get in the way of what I need. And that's sort of my human nature. And so I feel like a lot of us me, we operate out of that physical side a lot of times, but there's this spiritual side to us as well. And um, my heart is, you know, kind of, you know, able to, uh, it's like an instrument that can connect with the spiritual realm. You know, like when God created us, he didn't just sort of create us human beings, um, physical human beings only. He took the dirt from the ground and his own breath, and he breathed sort of his life into this into the physical. And so we are both physical and spiritual. We have Mm -hmm. a physical nature and we have a, and we can obviously perceive, you know, from a physical perspective, there are things that we can see and hear and touch and smell. And yet there's also another side that is, you know, according to scripture, bigger, wilder, better. Um, And if you can think about this, because you're talking about something eternal, um, older, than the physical world, you know, scripture says that the seen sprang from the unseen and the, and the seen is actually held together by this deeper, greater unseen reality. Jesus was talking about it all the time. That's why like when Lazarus dies and everyone's like, dude, your friend is dying. And he's like, he, t- he waits days before he goes and sees him because he's not concerned because he's not concerned because he knows there's a deeper reality. He knows that the the deeper reality of God, and he goes and you know um, uh, Mary and Martha say there's going to be a stench, and he's like not even worried about this. He's like you're talking about physical stuff. I'm talking about spiritual stuff, and he raises Lazarus from the dead because he's connected to this deeper unseen reality. And mm-hmm. so I feel like you know when you talk about sort of human nature, I feel like there is that physical side, but there's also this this um, the spiritual side, and my heart can feel. Hmm. 
My heart can love. My heart can have joy. My heart can know people, know my wife, know my friends, and know God. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's not with my head that I know God. It's not with my head that I love. It's with my heart that I love. And, it, and that's how I communicate with God. When I say like, I, you know, he's answering these questions, it's in my heart. It's like, mm-hmm. a, I just know it when I know it. When somebody mm-hmm. says, I think you need to not worry about how you're going to make money as a writer, my heart said, I just know that I know that that was the Holy Spirit speaking to me, you know, that kind of thing. And so I feel like there's always this tug of war in my life between the physical and the spiritual. And I, f- and hopefully, you know, day by day, glory, glory to glory, you know, I'm getting a little bit better. I, I you know, I have a good friend who, uh, who always says, um, um, just a, a, a wonderful, kind, kind word. He, he, he's well known for saying, um, we tend to uh, live in the decade and measure in the moment. So what he means is sort of, you know, live in the decade, like the decade behind us with regret or looking at the decade ahead of us and living with fear um, or, but, but then we live in the moment. So we want transition to happen now, you know, like, why am I still struggling with this this thing? Like, like I yelled at my son again. Why am I doing that? I want to be better, you know. I want to never do that again. And you beat yourself over the head for not getting better. And so this 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 guy flips it and says, "What we should be doing is living in the moment," you know, which is true. I mean, we should always be living in the moment, not in the past and not in the future, but in relationship with with the people in our lives in the moment, and not miss those moments and measure by the decade. So, are we doing better? now than we were 10 years from now and 10 years from now are we on a trajectory to be doing better then then great we're doing okay like be kind just kindness you know so in that tug of war between the spiritual and the physical i think the spiritual is winning day by day little by little increment by increment in my life and that's good that's a really good thing and i think the people around me would say that's a good thing too Hmm. all right and finally what is truth how do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? So I would have no way to answer this question until I had that kind of change my mind moment, <laughs> that big pivot. But for me, it's one one thing, and it's the truth of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. There's nothing. It's never let me down. You know, it's 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 how to know what is right and what is real in any moment. I mean, isn't that what we're all asking all the time in the middle of a COVID nineteen you know pandemic, in the middle of all this racial unrest and and all this just pain around you know injustice? Mm-hmm. How how do we know what is real and what is right? We're always asking that, you know, and. I know for me, from for myself, I know what is real and what is right because I follow Jesus um, and the way he lived um, and how to treat people. You know, it never lets me down. So I would say for me, um, I think for everybody, but for me, um, that's who I can speak about with authority. Um, that's truth for me. I'm curious. Um, there might have been a better place to put this question, but now now you've got me thinking about it. So I'm just going to put it at the end here. I'm curious. Um, we talked a lot about uh, self-medicating vices and sins and busyness and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering, to what extent do you think people use all those things, but, you know, the vices, the busyness to just kind of silence that nagging question about what is truth, what is real, what is right? Absolutely. You think that's, Yeah. Because look, we, we live in a broken world, right? It, it, you know, if 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 you if you believe um, there is there is you know the veracity and the authority of the Bible, um, something happened. Like there was perfection. There was there was a time where everything was 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 good, um, and then sin enters the world in the garden, and and things break. Relationships break. 
you know, the relationship between man and God breaks, the relationship between man and man breaks, there's strife and competition and malice. Um, but, but then there's also, um, you know, the relationship between man and himself or, you know, a woman and herself. That's why we, you know, have such little self-awareness. We do things that hurt ourselves. Not only do we hurt other people, but we hurt ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's just the nature of our world right now. You know, I mean, we live in, you know, if, if we look at sort of the sweep of, of biblical history, we live at a time where there is where the prediction from the biblical authors is there's going to be trouble, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and this trouble is because of, of the sin that lives in each one of us. We're sort of trapped by it. Um, Now Jesus comes along and says, Hey, I'm going to free you from that, but it's not immediately. We work that out over time. And so we're all, you know, scripture says, if you, if, if he who says he's without sin is a liar, you know, and so we're all dealing with this stuff. And it's painful, right? You're trying to figure out what's real and what's right. What do I do? What, you know, what should, who should I be? What, what should I do with my life? Um, what's right in this situation? You know, a lot of this stuff is very, very difficult. And so we, we, we make bad choices and we hurt people and we hurt other, we hurt ourselves. And so then what do we do? You know, Hmm. how do we deal with the pain? Well, culture rushes in and says, you know, sex, Hmm. alcohol, food, busyness, Mm-hmm. comfort, you know, and then it just makes things worse. I've, I've been a, you know, uh, you know, been an addict in so many different ways, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways would not be sort of the way that t- people typically, you know, refer to an addict. Um, but they are, they're attachments to things that are tr- you're, where you're trying to numb. You're trying to just sit there and say, this is a painful existence, you know? And so, um, rather than going to sort of the source um, which started, you know, for me was the very first time in my life where I was accessing true peace and joy and purpose and significance for the first time in my life when I was trying to pull, you know, what else is life other than those things? You know, I was trying to pull life, peace, joy, purpose, significance, you know, from inanimate objects, you know, from a, from a can of beer or from a, you know, from a pizza or, you know, you know, I was trying to, or, or from my kids, you know, and their, their achievements or my LinkedIn profile or my Facebook profile, you know, I'm trying to pull life from these things. How is, how am I going to get life from an inanimate object? It makes no sense. But I go to my father, I have a relationship with Jesus. I have the Holy spirit flowing through me. All of a sudden I have life throwing, flowing through me, filling me up and overflowing onto the people in my life. And it starts working. Like I'm not going to my wife saying, hey, you're not giving me what I need. I'm not going to my friends and saying, you're not being the friends you need me to be. I'm not going to my dad and saying, why can't you, you know, you know, whatever. Or my kids, why can't you do better in school? Why can't you do better in the athletic field? Because I need more validation as a human being. Instead, which I was guilty of, you know, all of those things. I think a lot of us are when we're so depleted. When we're trying to pull life from inanimate objects, we're going to be depleted because we can't get the, we can't get enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I started, you know getting, you know, having a relationship with God where I could actually get those things. And actually they started filling up my life in a way that I was, I was, um, a human being for the first time. I was a son for the first time. I was, you know, God says he's our father. I was, I was his son for the very first time in my life. And then I started overflowing. It was so much that I was starting to overflow on my wife. I would go come home and I'd be like, Hey, like, how can I help? Because I'm so full I have love to give now. I'm not looking for you to, to to give to me and I'm not telling her what, you know, what she needs to be giving me. I'm overflowing on her or my kids. And it's just like, dude, it changes everything. Not overnight, but geez, I mean, if you look at Justin before and Justin after, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> dark. 
So all you need is love. love. <laughs> love is all you Justin, thank Bye you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, oh, absolutely. Before we go, you want to tell listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the hub is gatherministries.com. That's the, that's the ministry that my wife and I run together. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find our books there, our devotionals, our podcast. Um, the, you can also go to wire for men. Um, there's a landing page there where you can sign up for the, for the wire devotional or loop for women. Um, those are the two companion kind of, you know, email devotionals. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook or everywhere. Um, and then the, the podcast is rush podcast. So you can get there through gather ministries, or you can also, um, just go to rushpodcast.com and connect with our stuff. And then our books are on Amazon. All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or just go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com. See you around, Internet. I know too well the feeling of being told whatever you do it better involve writing <laughs> um i was told that all through my teens and 20s and i you know i to be honest i kind of fought it because it just it made no sense um there's no real way to make a living at writing um you know maybe technical writing um still but um you know, journalism's dead. The novel is dead. <laughs> uh, nobody reads books. Um, when people read stuff on the internet, they mostly read listicles that are 80% pictures and they skip over all the words. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, here I am writing. Uh, it took a bit of finagling to get me to that point. Um, and if you're wondering if this is a lazy way to say buy my book it kind of is um my book's out in about a month a little a little more than a month um and if it doesn't sell well you know who knows if i'll ever get to write another one um but stories like justin's um really make me question kind of the wisdom of capitalism you know <laughs> and i don't know how you would feel about that as a former venture capitalist but um somehow in the 20th century especially, we've gotten this idea in our collective minds that without money as an incentive, no one would ever do anything productive uh, or that contributes to society. And I, I think that's pretty clearly not the case if you actually watch people. Um, now, obviously, there are horrible people that are motivated only by money. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, those people exist, but I, I think they're in the minority, right? Most people are motivated by the idea that they're helping other people, that they're contributing something to the world, that um, what they're doing has meaning. Um, and yeah, obviously, you need enough money to keep the lights on, to keep your kids fed. But you know, once you get past poverty, I just, I don't think the average person is motivated by making more money. Um, you know, and I don't know, <laughs> as a former venture capitalist, I don't know what Justin would say, would say about that. But I've just been thinking about that lately. 
how in the last half century we've kind of built this economic system of you know just laissez-faire uh capitalism where you know we tell people your real responsibility is to make money and then we allow making money to get harder and harder so people have to work multiple jobs and the you know the effect of that has been to completely hollow out our communities um and you know membership in um things that tend to hold communities together like you know um churches and service organizations have plummeted as we continue to tell people that the highest good they can use their time for is making money um and i don't know maybe it's important to try to remember that the system we have in place is not inevitable you know it's a choice um and I honestly think a lot of the reason for our present ugly political moment is that the economic system we have in place has made people just feeling completely empty and they're looking for fulfillment and they don't know where to look. So they end up looking to politics, you know, anyway, that's it for this week. If you like what I'm doing and you want to help out the show, the easiest way to do that is just go on Apple Podcasts and give it a good review. Um, every review helps the show get noticed. If you write a review, I will read it live on the air and make you internet famous. That is a promise. That's how we do things here. Um, if you want to support me financially, help me keep the lights on a little bit, you can go to ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash change my mind. Um, you can throw me any amount of cash in increments of $3, which is, I guess, the price of a cup of coffee. I think that's why they do it that way. Um, if that doesn't sound good, you can pre-order my book. As said previously, I do have a book coming out. It's called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. Um, you can find it at murderbearsbook.com. My publisher has made the first couple chapters available for free there, so check it out. If you like it, you can pre-order it. It'll be out in just about a month. Otherwise, just go to luketharrington.com and you'll see all the various projects I'm involved with. It's pretty great. Um, I want to thank Justin for being on the show. If you're interested in what he does, go to gatherministries.com and check him out. There's quite a bit of good stuff there. I read a large chunk of his book, Odyssey. It's pretty good. Um, I want to thank Jonathan Clausen for editing the podcast. He's a great guy, a great editor. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Check out their other shows, Faith and Other Oddities, and The Commentarians. They're both good. And I want to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.